All right, everybody, welcome to this week's Yawa. We're going to be switching things up a little bit. We've been trying some different stuff, and we've kind of come to the conclusion that what we're about to do starting this at this point forward will be a good idea. So we're going to wait to hear from you if it actually was a good idea. But I think it's an excellent idea, actually. Well, I like it too. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. So what we're going to be doing is posting Yawa videos on YouTube every single day. It's going to be a more direct um, individual clip because it'll be a specific question asked and a specific answer to that question. Some of the complaints or some of the comments, if you will, that we've gotten say... Constructive criticism. Yeah, we're it's good. It's it, no problem. We're taking it constructively and trying to change things up for you guys. Absolutely. People are like, hey, this says whatever, and it didn't happen until 10 minutes into the video or five or eight or whatever it is. So this will be a drastically more direct answer to those individual questions on YouTube. But for those of you that love to listen to everything we have to say and kind of want it as a more single listen digestibility format. Yeah. And more of a podcast-esque feel where we get to talk and share a little bit of info about what's been going on in our lives. That will be available on Apple Podcast. If you didn't know, we do play all of these every week on Apple Podcast, as well as wherever you get your your pods from. The pod catchers, the I don't know the things posted? that catch the pods coming from us podsters. Okay. Yeah. So uh, every week, Wednesdays, you're going to get the full audio. That is for the entire week on there, and then starting Wednesdays, you're going to get each individual question only that we were asked posted onto YouTube. So Wednesday through Tuesday, and then starting again next Wednesday will be the new series of questions. Basically, we'll be answering seven questions then each week, and each video will get posted one question at a time each day. As long as that wasn't confusing to anybody, we're going to get started with uh, explaining some cool stuff that just happened. Montana, baby. So if this is your first time to our channel, make sure to hit that subscribe button, turn on notifications, and comment below if you are intrigued at our new and improved, hopefully, plan of action with Yawa. Okay, so uh, we've been talking about it for a little while, and uh, we finally went on the trip. We went to hunt sharp-tailed grouse in Montana. With Aiden. With Aiden. It was, uh, it was fantastic, but it was definitely a different pace of hunting as some may expect it to be (laughs) taking a two-year-old on a hunting excursion, if Uh, you will. We planned ahead and were prepped and prepared by having that really awesome Osprey pack, which you can Mm -hmm. watch a review video that we did on that prior to going on the trip. And I can tell you it worked phenomenally. It was was great. It was awesome to have out there with Aiden. It took a little bit of adjusting that, you know, at first, um, First load, I was like, yeah, this feels great. And then you walk a mile and you go, ah, it needs adjusted here. Or it needs a little tweak there. Made okay, some fine that's, tuning. Yeah, that, then that felt good. And I had it pretty well fine tuned by day three to where it was. I mean, we walked that whole loop and no felt issues. fine. No issues at all. No. Um, 
And the water pack was awesome. Aiden absolutely loved it. I had to keep shutting it off because he would drain the whole water pack. Like, where is this water going, kid? That was probably why every like 10 minutes it was pee poop, dad, pee poop. And we would yes. have to get him out of the pack we, and peeing in the field. We, we would load up. Yeah. And I mean, I'm like, all right, so we're going to walk down to this little waterway and work around that because it was hotter, a little drier. Some of the the recommendations from people were to hunt near water, which makes sense, uh, especially out in the West where it's dry. Hit that first water spot, moved up around, you know, we're maybe not even a mile into the walk here. He pooped, dad, he pooped out of here coming from over my ears. So I'm like, we're potty training or we're attempting to anyhow. And he's doing pretty well with it. We get down, we pee, we load back up. We walk another half a mile to a mile. He's got to go again and get down, unload him, load him back up. It was, uh, it was fun. It was fun and definitely was a different pace, uh, having, having to take potty breaks, more mm-hmm. snack breaks, things like that for the <laughs> little guy. He wanted to eat and pee and poop pretty much constantly on this trip. And uh, our setup for it went really, really well. We've got that new box that we put in um, yeah, we just got it like a week ago in the back of the truck. Yep. And it worked really well. So there's big pullout drawers. There's three boxes in the back and we primarily utilized the trailer itself for dogs on this one. But, um, one of the dog boxes held the little traveling potty seat. That was pretty, pretty, <laughs> yeah, uh, like fit helpful. right in there, like a little closet. We actually shot a video while we were out there on our hunting rig because we get asked a lot of questions on what do you pack when you go hunting? What does your setup look like? Mm-hmm. So we're like, hey, well, we're out here doing this. We're just going to show what this looks like. So be on the lookout for that video coming out soon. We didn't actually do a review video, but I think we talked about it, or you mentioned it in that video specifically, but we got a, a battery powered generator yeah. um, that's a maximum output of 500 watts, which is kind of a requirement. Uh, I think 400 watts is what's required of the uh, Ranger, the little Traeger Ranger. So that portable Traeger grill, we brought that along and we cooked hot dogs and brats and hamburgers for lunches during the day, which... Also, Aiden enjoyed that. You know, I mean, typically for me, it's maybe a protein bar or a couple pieces of jerky or something, but he needs to eat more than that as a growing individual. Yep. And and that Traeger was awesome to have along and make little field, just field lunches that way. Throw it up there. And that little battery pack thing worked slick. Uh, charged it up before we left. Still got like 70% of the battery in it. And uh, we cooked lunch every day on the thing. So... Um, it was, uh, it was a good all around trip. We were successful at not dying while we were out there. (laughs) Um, not that that was a a big fear, but, uh, we made it the entire time that we had planned on being there, even though at the end of, uh, day two, I was going, yeah, we're. I talked him into day three that we needed just one more morning hunt before we took off. And that was when Ethan shot. The one and only sharp tail we shot on the entire trip. And he shot it while Aiden was strapped to his back. He had a camera clipped on one area and yeah. a shotgun in the other. And he he nailed this uh, this sharp tail. And little Thunderbutt, who's being a good boy, sleeping on his dog bed back there. He actually retrieved it, which was really cool. He was out there running around mm-hmm. um, and retrieved that bird, which was really cool. But we did see sharp tail every day we were out there, which was yeah. awesome. And, and considering, I would say on average... Uh, we probably walked last year when we went, we probably walked in the vicinity of eight to 10 miles a day, I would say on average. And we saw uh, quite a few birds. Um, 
This year, I think we probably walked close to six to eight miles total in the three days of hunting. Maybe just a little over that. I'd have to look. At, I'd have to look up my health app because I was wearing my uh, Apple yeah, Watch. Yeah, but your, and, your watch died on one of the days. But I saw it on my phone and it records it that sure. way too. Okay, so but I didn't add it up. I know that we covered at least five miles the first day, and I think we probably covered a little less the second day because it was a little rainy. And then mm-hmm. we only hunted a half day. So probably eight miles is a good es- estimate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a really awesome trip. We hunted on all public access land. So we also shot a video about that. And definitely, if yeah. you're ever interested in doing a hunt in Montana, check out that video. It's got some really great information. Yeah, we um, we talked about how we used uh, both Onyx Maps and, well, primarily Onyx Maps to work through the block management system that's set up out there. So definitely check that video out. And we do leak our hunting spots where we found birds. I show you the specific properties, their block management numbers, how to find them, all of those things. So, um, you know, I think that uh, as a whole, there's plenty of spots to go around and sharing is caring, folks. So Exactly. So, Now that we've given you a brief overview of what we've had going on in these last few days, we're going to get started with answering some questions. The first question we have is from Andreza, which was seconded by Kelly Weeks. So because it got seconded, I figured we had to get to this one at least in this week's Yawa. Hi guys, we have finally gotten our French pointer and he is a cutie. The problem is we don't have a fenced in backyard. We're looking into invisible wireless fences. Okay. Will this affect his collar training later on when we are ready to start training him for hunting? He is eight weeks old. Thank you guys. And Kelly had said, Andreza, we have the exact same question. Hopefully they see this. (laughs) We saw it. So this is a really good question Um, and definitely utilizing a wireless fence system is a good option, but typically not something that we recommend starting when your puppy's only eight weeks old. No. I usually like to tell people that I like to have a solid collar conditioning intro to recall or place training prior to introducing the um, training collar and an electric fence. I think that the dogs end up having a better understanding of the e-collar, as well as what the expectation is with the wireless fence, if you do it in the reverse order. So they learn how to recall or how to kennel onto a dog bed utilizing an e-collar first. Yeah, you have drastically less of a chance of having a big e-collar fiasco or hiccup. Um, I think a lot of times what ends up happening, if you utilize that fence setup first, the dogs kind of learn to run from, hide from, avoid. try and escape, avoid the collar pressure themselves rather than learning properly how to turn it off. Um, they just end up in, oh, if I bolt back to the house or the yard or I'm whatever, safe. I'm safe. Exactly. And we don't want that mentality to be built around e-collar pressure because it will transfer right into your attempts later in life to collar condition them for recall or collar condition them for place training or anything else. And that will be a tough thing to overcome. So as well as typically an eight week old puppy isn't really mentally ready enough for that type Mm -hmm. of training. Um, That's when we're recommending doing all the clicker training, building a lot of focus and trust and a bond with you first. So I understand you don't have a fenced in backyard and there's always that concern. Well, I don't want my puppy running off or getting into the road or anything like that. 
So a good alternative would be you just are always out there with your puppy, have them on a check cord, have them on a long lead so that they can go potty and run around, but aren't able to get away from you necessarily. Um, and then for some off leash time, because I know people that live in town that also have, you know, no fenced yards, their dogs constantly always just on leash and the puppy never learns what life could be like off of a check cord or off of a leash. So making sure once your puppy's fully vaccinated to go head over to dog parks and places that they can be off leash or out, um, on some dog training grounds where they can have off leash training would be very beneficial as well. And if you're looking for one, we have check cords available on our website. Yes. So that was a really good question. Definitely. If you have more questions, it would be a great place to hit us up on our online dog training community on Patreon, especially with your new little puppy. If you need more help with any of the training sequences coming up, which there will be a lot of them, head over to our Patreon community, patreon.com slash standing stone kennels, and we can help you out. Perfect. All right. What do we have next for question? Next question is from Jack Desmarais, which if I said your name wrong, I am a sorry. I am a 17 year old and have a dream to open my own kennel one day. I just got a job helping a trainer part time. Do you have any suggestions as to what I should do in the future to get started in the dog world? This is a really good question and probably one that we get asked fairly frequently. Um, Ethan actually had a phone call very recently the other day, actually, um, from a young kid that was asking questions. Oh, was it just last night? Yeah, it was just last night. My days blend together. About getting started and kind of talking about what that actually entails. Yeah. The biggest thing with it is, um, first of all, for the young man that called, he probably got an earful more of information than he was actually anticipating. Um, I'm a big advocate for young entrepreneurs. I was one as a little boy and, um, I like to help young youth that I see a little bit of that spunk or fire or drive, desire, things like that in. So never hesitate to reach out. If you're watching this right now and you are interested, um, reach out to us. I'm happy to help. So we talked about last night, a lot of different things to go in because, um, this specifically, and it it goes hand in hand with the question that was asked here, but he was asking about, he was talking about wanting to breed and wanting to sell trained dogs and wanting potentially to be able to train dogs. And he's got a YouTube channel. He called and asked about us collaborating on a hunting video, you know, and it was, um, it was kind of a cool conversation. And what I ended up posing back to him was just a number of different questions. Like, have you, you gotta, thought about these things? Have There's you a thought l- about these things? There yeah, exactly. is a lot to think about. And I definitely think that It seems very glamorous, if you will, to be a dog trainer, to be outside, working the dogs, getting to do what you love. And that is very true. But there is a lot of hard work that goes into running a business as well as running a business that revolves around live animals. Step one, do you like dog Yeah. Everyone's like, well, I love dogs. Well, there's a (laughs) lot more that goes into just loving dogs. You got to love the poop. You got to love the puke. You got to love the mess and the dirt and um, the not so fun times when dogs get hurt or injured and you have to get to the vet and things like that. Those things happen. um, And you have to be willing to take on all of that responsibility. And uh, it sounds like, Jack, you are starting in the right direction. We always recommend going and working or training or interning for another trainer, another kennel, definitely a kennel that you 
would want to be a part of, um, you know, that you see is doing things right the way that you think that they should be done. And then learning as much as you can from that experience. And you might learn things that, Hey, this is the perfect setup. This is exactly how I want to do things. Or you might learn a little bit differently and say, Hey, this is a really cool idea, but I think if when I want to do this, if I just tweak it a little bit, it might just work better. And those might be ideas that you can bring up to your employer and they may be willing to work with you on those new ideas. I know we are always open to new ideas from our employees because yes, we've been there, done that for a very long time, but you can always learn new things, try new things and improve upon your training facility, your training program, all of those things. If you aren't learning, you aren't trying. I mean, that's all there's to it. Anybody thinks they know everything is uh, fooling themselves. Now, I will say uh, you're definitely in the right direction, like Kat mentioned about going and apprenticing, but be upfront and be honest with the person that you are working with. You know, it's, hey, this is my goal to do these things. And I think that'll take you a lot farther in this process of, um, honesty, integrity. Yep. And saying, you know, I'm looking to potentially do this on my own someday, but I want to learn and I want to do it right. And putting in the time, like any type of apprenticeship before you actually start taking money from people is the best policy. I mean, it's, uh, one of those things that it's a big occupation and it takes a lot of time, a lot of dogs, a lot of experience to be able to learn, the ins and outs and you'll never know it all, but you need a good start before you start taking money from people. And watching our YouTube channel is a great start, but it's not all that you need to go out and start taking money from people to start training dogs. Um, and even just having your own personal dog that you've trained to even a high level of excellence, that's great. But I think that what, I think that what people sometimes struggle with in the future then is they may have had that once in a lifetime dog or that dog that was super natural and super trainable because there's dogs that are natural. There's dogs that are trainable. And then there's dogs that are both. And if you luck out and you happen to have one that's both, it kind of makes training dogs seem pretty darn easy. And then you get the ones that are not natural and not trainable. And you still have to end up working with them, helping them to become the best dog that they're capable of being because you've promised to their owners that you're going to be able to succeed with their dog. Yes. Search out some problem dogs, you know, a dog that says this dog's gun shy, or this dog is bird shy, or this dog has, um, you know, zero drive or desire to retrieve or for birds or just Take some of those dogs and learn how to help them through to get them to the next level. And we've talked about before, and I'm still a strong believer that every dog has a ceiling uh, and that their, you know, maybe their introductions or their beginning levels of training, how they started out could affect where that would be, or the person that's actually training them can affect, you know, a better trainer handler is going to get a dog farther than a beginner novice just from the sheer understanding and experience. Yep. But at the same time, if you can take one of those problem, quote unquote, problem dogs and help them to succeed to some degree, that's going to make you a better trainer. I mean, that's going to help prepare you for what's going to come through those doors of, Hey, please help us get sparky. Or in our case, a lot of times gunner, no it's offense. It's a very, very popular dog it is name. It's just a popular name. I mean, there's been times where we've had four or five Gunners, gunners at the same time in, in the, kennel. the kennel. Yep. So we've got big gunner, liver gunner, white gunner, white gunner, and black gunner, old gunner. 
wire hair gunner. You just throw in all the extras to describe the dog. But but search out some of those dogs that are struggling with things and find ways to help work them through things. You know, think outside the box. All right, this is the set path. How do we change this? Modify yeah, you have to be able to adapt to to fit this dog. This dog's showing this. How can we use that to our advantage to get them to point Z, whatever? Yeah. So the more experience you can gain, the more resources and information you can take in and learn, not only from watching training videos, but just, you know, listening to podcasts and things like that. Um, there's a lot of really great information out there on training dogs. Um, and then deciding um, you know, what your ultimate goal is if you plan on being a trainer, if you plan on, you know, we talked, like I said, Ethan talked yesterday about, you know, train dogs and we broke down this young, young man's 13 years old. And that's and th- something that I was just going to, you can finish that part, yeah, but, yeah. um, you know, looking at it because you want to be a trainer and you want to have your own business, but you also have to be able to pay the bills. And if you, sure. um, look at live animals, there are 24 seven, 365 responsibility. So if you want a little bit of time off, um, after a while, having the right people that you can hire as part-time help to give you some breaks from that kennel life, um, is important, but you have to be able to pay their bills as well. You've got paychecks to write. And, um, so you need to make sure that you are planning ahead your business properly. And that's where the rest of this came in. Sorry. Yeah. So he mentioned multiple times that, uh, trained dogs, trained dogs were his deal. He was going to be breeding. He wanted to breed labs, uh, goldens, short hairs, maybe Britney's or something. He had several collection. And I said, well, if you watch any of our videos where we specifically talk about how to find the right breeder for you, we say red flags on anybody that's producing multiple, especially more than two types of, uh, types of different hunting dogs. It's just really hard to give them all justice and mm-hmm. learn about testing requirements and health requirements for all of those different breeds. It's, it's a lot to do one lot breed. To do. It's a lot, a lot to do multiple breeds. So I just feel like it's one of those situations you're better off with, uh, trying to, to do something right versus trying to shotgun effect and hopefully you're, you hit the board somewhere. So then the other side of it is, you know, we kind of broke down, well, if you have trained dogs, he said, well, what could I sell them for? Would we go over that? This would be kind of a rough demand number depending on your market and all of these things. He said, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. I said, okay, well it does, but now we need to break this down. Okay. So we've got to feed the dog. Uh, if you're taking this puppy from your program, you're not making that money on it as a puppy. So you've got to take that out of the cost of your trained dog. Or you got to buy this dog from someplace else. So it's going to cost you the same either way. And then you have to take it to the vet. You have to feed it. You have to do anything that happens from a accidental standpoint to help keep the dog healthy and do all of the things right by the dog. And then you divide out what's left by the number of months it's going to take you to get there. And I was like, comes out to, I don't know, I was helping him. I was like, you got to do this math for me. It was um, like a couple hundred dollars a month. Yeah, less than that. With what the specific, I think it was like $120 a month is what we came up to with. Him. And he was, he's like, oh, I said, do you think you can live off $120 a month? You know, and it, of course he's 13. So $120 a month probably still sounds like a fair amount of money. But um, I said from a, you know, professional standpoint, we've got to look at these other things. And 
you and your, I think, cousin or something want to do this and make a living, we've got to look at some other stuff. So it was uh, it was cool to have the conversation and I hope that it was well received. But ultimately, it sounds like you are headed in the right direction. And the more experience you can gain before you jump out there on your own, the better off you are. And just looking at it from the whole picture of not just this, you know, romantic, glamorous, I'm a dog trainer mm-hmm. point of view, but looking at it from a realistic work, responsibility you know, point of view, as well as a financial point of view, because we all need to make a living. We all need to be able to pay our bills. And if you can't plan out your business plan accordingly, yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to be pay your bills. Exactly. So uh, great question, Jack. All right. We are here for part two of this week's Yawa. Let's go ahead and answer some questions. Speaking of questions, we didn't mention this in the first part, but how we're pulling all of these questions are from YouTube, folks. Yeah, so in the comments. Yeah, throw them in the comments and get your buddies to throw some extra thumbs up on them because those are typically the ones that we're able to pull out and say, ah, lots of people want to see the answer to this question, so let's answer it. Throw at the top, Yawa question, type out your question, however long it may need to be, and we will do our best to include it in next week's Yawa. So this first question here is from Charmaine Lewis. I have a four and a half month old black lab. He is extremely session smart. Mm -hmm. He's about the same age as Clutch, I think, right now. We tried tried the e-collar twice to place train, and he just runs and hides and then refuses to even eat. We really want more consistent behavior from him. What is the next step? So session smart dogs is a real problem. Yeah, and we talk about generalizing training with actually Clutch in a recent video that we did. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really important to utilize training and training sessions in different areas of your house, in different um, environments, at different times. Uh, You know, work through a few things now, then give him a break and then work through a few things later so he doesn't think that, oh, I only have to listen and focus during a training session. The other side of things is um, your puppy's response to the e-collar definitely isn't what we would expect out of a puppy that's ready for collar conditioning. And how you handled the training session, obviously we didn't get to see that training session. Speaking of which... Mm. Being- just, just throwing this out there, I don't mean to cut you off, but just search Standing Stone on YouTube. This is like to find this video. Standing Stone Session Smart Dog. And it'll pop up first video right there with clutch. And we talk about the the process of generalizing. So thank you, producer. Now getting back to the fact that we didn't actually get to see your training session, which would be very, very beneficial for us to do that. Uh, Some places that you can reach out to us is on our online dog training community on Patreon. It's a big one for that. Yeah. Especially because our eyes and being able to read the situation is our most powerful tool for giving you guys specific feedback and advice. So seeing what's actually going on with your four and a half month old lab instead of us making assumptions would be really beneficial. So check us out on Patreon if you still need more help. But we've, well, we've seen firsthand, a guy said this clicker training stuff, it doesn't work. I don't understand what's going on. Dog doesn't get it. And I said, okay, well, send me a video of what's going on. Well, his timing was completely off. And I said, fix your timing. Boom. 
it works. He said, this clicker training stuff is the best stuff in the whole world when you know how to do it. So it's simple, simple things of him explaining he's doing everything right, even though he doesn't know what he's doing isn't right. Yeah. And just sometimes getting the justification that what you're doing is right, or just that little nudge to say, Hey, keep doing what you're doing. You're going to get there. Mm -hmm. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't let your puppy think that they can get out of this. And that's something that we sometimes see with people that are starting that collar conditioning introduction, whether it's for recall or place training where they put the collar on the puppy, the vibrate starts and the puppy goes, whoa, 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 wait, what is that? I'm so unsure. I don't know what to do. The really cool thing is when you search standing stone session, smart dog, the second video that pops up is Teaching a stubborn dog to come, guaranteed, which is where we talk about a specific dog that has this same bolting type, avoiding type tendencies, and we show in 14 minutes and 29 seconds exactly how to work through this. Yeah, and typically the answer is to have the dog clipped up to a check cord so that they Mm -hmm. can't avoid, they can't escape, they can't run and hide, and you can keep them and redirect their focus to what you're asking. So that would be my first recommendation is to throw a lead or a check cord on your puppy when you're doing your next place training session, and then the vibrate isn't going to hurt your puppy. It isn't going to... um, do anything detrimental to your puppy. And they need to understand that the way that it shuts off is not by running and hiding, not by freaking out, not by doing any of that, but by complying with something that they already know how to do. Build the momentum of that training session up first by using, you know, your kibble and your training session and your clicker, and then transition to overlaying with the e-collar. So I want to talk about something really cool in in regards to this specifically. We mentioned in the first part, if you haven't seen that yet, go back and watch it or uh, find the questions. Excuse me. Listen to it. We're changing things around a little bit, but listen to it. We talk about specifically, if you aren't learning, you aren't trying. I said that. Okay. So I was watching a video um, while listening to on our drive, a video that was by Bob at Lone Duck. We've mentioned him a couple of times on our channel. He's a good friend and a great dog trainer. And this is a, it was a video about collar conditioning. It was called collar conditioning talk part two or something. Right. And then I know a fair amount about collar conditioning, but the thing that I picked up from his video was an explanation that it was just, you know, somebody has a different spin on how to explain it. And it makes more sense with dogs that have this issue. You think about when you start teaching basic behaviors with clicker training or positive reinforcement, how quickly they pick up on it, right? So you click once, you click again, you click again, and then all of a sudden they're just sitting, boom, 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 boom. They get it that fast, right? So you have to think about the same thing in regards to the negative reinforcement aspect of things. It's reinforcement, so you're going to end up building behaviors. Strengthening those behaviors. We'll talk about this later because I think there's another question about this. Spoiler alert. But um, your any reinforcement based training is to is designed to strengthen behaviors, both positive and negative reinforcement. So, anyhow, he said, think about you know the dog does something the wrong behavior, the wrong reaction in regards to the e collar, whether that's yipping, and he he goes, he made this, I, just, I died every time he's like, yep, that. So anyhow. Um, They make some vocalization. It's not ideal, but if you let off in that situation, they learn vocalization is what shut that off. 
very, very quickly, just as fast as they learned those new behaviors using positive reinforcement, or if they learned to bolt, or if they learned to hide at the truck, or if they learned to avoid by by freezing or hiding behind you or going between your legs, all of these things, if you shut the collar off, they just learned that was what turned it off. And they learned that very, very fast, especially- Two or three reps, it sounds like. Especially- when it's their own idea. That's the most powerful thing. That's why we talk about free shaping with positive reinforcement. It's essentially what you're doing is free shaping with negative reinforcement. I don't know if that's exactly a thing, but it's pretty dang close. I'm sure some behavioralist, socialist, something or other will correct us. Yeah, well, I'd like the explanation of what it would be technically considered, but it's allowing the dog to make up their mind of what they want to do and it shuts off the negative reinforcement and then the dog goes, that was the answer. So they're going to try it again. And if you give into that again, or you allow that again, you're essentially marking again. Yep. That was right. You're reinforcing that try behavior it again. and you're strengthening yeah. that that's the behavior that they're going to exhibit, not the ultimate going onto their dog bed behavior that we're looking for. So if you are getting ready to collar condition, or you're already struggling with these problems, you need to set yourself up for success. And watching that second video that I talked about there, Um, is going to make a big difference. Prepare yourself ahead of time that your dog may potentially have an adverse reaction and then you'll know how to handle it. Yeah. And we have people that a lot of times reach out to us on Patreon and are saying, Hey, I'm going to start this. And I always recommend, Hey, throw an, you know, check cord on your puppy before you start this. No, we don't know if they're going to have an adverse reaction. We don't know that they're not going to immediately come to us, but if they do try and hide, you're prepared for it. So Mm -hmm. we don't allow them to get out of it even one time. Sounds like a total Patreon plug, but one of the most recent people, these are just, I mean, these are just actual Real life things. examples that yep. we see all the time. So don't feel alone, but I was watching a training session because we have a tier that actually allows you to do video chats with me. I sit and watch your training sessions. And in that session, she was like, I don't know what to do. He's not coming to the dog bed and he's holding down vibrate on the collar. I said, well, don't let it off. I was able to coach through that in one short session we got the response we were looking for as opposed to her trying it a few times and then saying, hey, this is what's going on now. now. I shot a video of what's what do going we do? on. Yeah. yeah. So, so we were able to, you all, Ethan was able to help through that session in the first go around and not allow that puppy to understand that there was an alternative option. Yeah, it was absolutely a great question. Great question. Next question is from Corey Wyatt. Corey Wyatt. Whoo. First, they said that they love our easy lead. Uh Awesome. Second, they have a Yawa question. Awesome. How do you deter counter surfing? Our pup doesn't necessarily try to eat anything, just wants to see what is going on or what is up on the counter. This is a great question and one that I know lots of people have. Lots of people have. We get asked that on a regular basis for sure. It's very natural for dogs to want to try and counter surf and see what's up on the counter. Uh, for a couple of different reasons, one of which they're intuitive and explorative. Explorer? Ex- Inquisitive? Okay. They like to, they like explore. to explore their surroundings. Yeah, curious. that's what I was looking. They're curious. curious. They're, um, and, and that we do stuff on the counters, right? So why that not? sometimes involves food. <laughs> well, not even getting to the food part. They just want to see what we're doing, right? Because they're curious. So then comes the problem when they do get up there and then snack snack goes the sandwich or the whatever it is oh, and then so many terrible videos on facebook about letting dogs uh, do that yes there was one a long time ago about this the dog muffins? that would steal uh cupcakes 
Well, cupcakes. Mu- cupcakes, muffins, whatever. Yeah, I could get up there and with paw and like pull them toward and eat them. And, they're and like, they were videoing it. Yeah, let's watch this because it's hilarious to see what's happening. Um, Reinforcement-based training. <laughs> yeah, essentially we just taught that dog that uh, if you spend enough time sneaking out them muffins, you can have them all. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so what ends up happening is they do reward themselves for mm-hmm. getting up on the counters eventually. They get a snack. They get a treat. They get whatever they were trying to get off the counter, and then they think, huh, success. I will try this again. again? Yeah. Then you holler at them. Hey. You get after them. Hey, then they learn that they need to be sneaky about it. And they only get up on the counters or in the garbage or do these things when you aren't watching. Yes. So some tips and tricks that we have are um, definitely place training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you can jump over here. Little Thunderbutt. He's yep. six months old and he is hanging out on his dog bed while we're doing this Yawa. And this is his, you know, normal routine when we're in the kitchen, when we're cooking and the dogs are milling around, especially the young dogs that really haven't learned the expectations. They are on dog beds hanging out uh, so that they don't get the opportunity to counter surf. So the uh, short answer is the best way, in our opinion, to prevent counter surfing from becoming a bad habit is to prevent the dogs from learning that it's an option. And that happens by, you know, not allowing them the opportunity to learn when they're in that super impressionable stage. Yes. Where they are, they're, they're exploring and they're learning. These are part of life and all of these things can happen. And if you can prevent it from happening then, so it's kind of, you know, a little bit of under your thumb, if you will, from an obedience standpoint in the early stages, because then you get to dogs that are like our adult dogs. Quest is wandering around here, right? So two years old, year and a half, two years old, three years old, four years old, whatever it may be. Those dogs don't know that it's an option and you can, you know, you can trust them to do a lot more things. Yeah. And so we're, we're ultimately conditioning good behaviors, not allowing them to even have the opportunity to learn those bad behaviors. Now, if you've already got a puppy or a dog that is a terrible counter surfer, yes, you can utilize. Throw it away. Start over. (laughs) Bad joke. You can utilize place training still, but then when your dog quest wanders off, you Mm -hmm. have to be like, get back on your dog bed or is she getting into something? Which she has been very much conditioned from a puppy, just like Thunder, of, hey, we just hang out on our dog beds. Counter surfing isn't an option. I would say that we have a couple dogs that have learned through just not as good of consistency because we're human as well, that there is the opportunity to counter surf or just that really high intelligence Mm -hmm. um, that even through this conditioning, they still learn. Um, But things like um, mouse traps can be a option for you where you put mouse traps mm-hmm. on the counter so that there's that immediate perfect timing on the response of if they try and get on the counter, that mouse trap snaps. It doesn't necessarily snap them, no, but it startles. startles them to say, Oh, I wasn't supposed to do that. And the most of the time, they, well, most of the time they know most of the time they're sneaking, you know, they know. And if you get that little, Hey, or something, they're like, Oh crap, I got caught. Well, that snap from the trap is enough to go, whoa, to most dogs. And they go, I better not uh, mess around with that anymore. It doesn't matter if dad's here or mom's here or not. Right. So it's uh, one of those options for people that, you know, 
don't always have eyes on what's going on. And the timing of the correction is really important. Timing, the most important thing in dog training. Yes. Yes, it is. So that was a really good question. That was a really good question. All right. I think we've got time for one more in this part. Yeah. So this is a good question um, from Tyler Cook. And we actually talked about that we were going to be doing. Tyler Cook. Not the Tyler Cook that I went to school with. We had this conversation in, uh, I think he's a patron too. Okay. Yeah. Um, So I've watched many of your videos, but can't say like some that I've seen them all. So not entirely sure if you have addressed this specifically. baby. (laughs) How about explaining and giving examples of positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment, why each one is important and beneficial and how to properly use each one. So, so that you know, Tyler, we have actually done a four quadrants of operant conditioning video with examples um, on our YouTube channel. Ethan's going to look it up and tell you what you can search to find it. If you search standing stone operant conditioning, it will come up with a video titled four things you need to know about dog training, operant conditioning. And it talks about the four quadrants. Yes. So there's... And gives examples and videos the examples. Yes, yes. So to go over those briefly, though, we talked about earlier that um, reinforcement-based training is trying to strengthen a behavior. Correct. So having a dog stay on a dog bed for a long amount of time. That's be an the behavior example. we want to strengthen, yeah. First, we teach that via positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. So we're adding something to the situation. Positive reinforcement does not always mean treats or cookies. That's a common misnomer. No, but it is easy to utilize a food reward in Mm -hmm. training sessions with dogs because most are very food motivated. But you can also use retrieves or uh, praise or anything that the dog enjoys. When we do the positive pigeon drill, we're actually utilizing pigeons because we're adding a pigeon to the drill when they do the right thing. So that's a form of positive reinforcement. Yeah. So anything that the dog wants to work for and is going to get as a reward is the positive thing that you're adding to that situation. So clicker training, teaching the dog to go on the dog bed, Mm -hmm. click, they get the reward of the kibble. Then you can start to strengthen that behavior even more through negative reinforcement where they learn to take away something, the stimulation from the e-collar, by going on to their dog bed. Correct. So both of those things are going to strengthen the behavior of going on your dog bed. Yep. The timing is the key because when you start to utilize the e-collar, I think that that's a a mistake people make. Your collar pressure needs to turn on and then the cue is asked, the behavior is exhibited, and then the collar pressure shuts off. That makes it reinforcement-based. If you do it in the other where you would ask and the dog, this is what we're moving into next. This is positive punishment. If you ask, the dog doesn't do it. Then you turn on the collar as a form of punishment to say you did this wrong. And then it shuts off when they comply. That is not negative reinforcement. Right. And the reason for which is the reinforcement based portion is like Kat said, strengthening behaviors. And the other is weakening or diminishing a behavior. So we're trying to correct for, in the place training aspect of things, we're correcting for them coming off the bed. I don't want you to do that anymore. I want you to stay there. So there is a little bit of a... Yeah. So the other side of the 
the coin mm -hmm. with the operant conditioning is the punishment-based training, which people get very confused and up in arms about positive means good, negative means bad, punishment is bad, you know, all these connotations with these words. They're just words that are more about a mathematical equation, but positive punishment would be if he gets off his dog bed now, after being asked to be there and stay there, then we would add the collar, which I've got it sitting here so that my timing will be good if he decides to get off. Mm -hmm. But I would add the stimulation back to the collar until he's back on his dog bed because we want to weaken that behavior yep. of him getting off his dog bed when he's not been released. But that timing is the key separator between negative reinforcement and positive punishment. Yes. So that's an example of positive punishment. And then an example of negative punishment, which is less used in dog training because again, timing and dogs have very short attention spans and it takes a lot of mental maturity for dogs to put the pieces together to understand why they're missing out on something. Um, I like to use more examples with children. So if your kid breaks curfew, they don't get to use the car the next day. So they're losing the privilege of using the car. You're taking that away. Mm -hmm. In the form of punishment. In the form of punishment because they did something wrong. And the ultimate goal being to weaken the behavior or diminish the behavior of missing not showing. Curfew. Yeah, missing curfew. So um, show we, up on time, kids. Yeah, we can utilize it in dog training. And if you watch some of our steadiness training videos with Hatch that we put out, mm -hmm. um, that is where he is steady. If he takes a step or moves or breaks to try and make a retrieve when he hasn't been released to make that retrieve. That's when I become the bird dog. <laughs> and yes, Ethan has retrieved a pigeon in his mouth. So mm -hmm. check out that video. Probably not the smartest idea, but. Um, <laughs> it was sure funny. From the, you were talking about Marissa and curfew and stuff. This is just a little fun family story. My mom was brutal. <laughs> I'm talking right now. You miss curfew by one minute. And you if were you grounded. ever see his mom, she's like the littlest, sweetest lady. She's shorter and tinier than me. Uh huh. We've got all kinds. Of, I've got all kinds of mom stories. <laughs> Usually they were like viewed from a distance because it was my older brother getting in trouble. But you um, learned what not to do by watching what he did. <laughs> I learned vicariously through his mistakes. Um, <laughs> the but it was one minute was one day that you were grounded. So I mean, if you're 15 minutes late, that's just over, just two, over weeks. two weeks. That's a long time when you're in high school. I mean, to be grounded, think about that. Yeah, so that's a long time. Uh, 30 minutes is not that late when you're talking about being in the grand scheme of life, but a month that's of being grounded month. is a long time. <laughs> so, yeah. um, needless to say, I, I believe I only missed curfew one time by a few minutes and I called ahead, you know, I mean, I was like, I'm going to miss curfew. I know. Um, Here's the keys, you know, I'm grounded for whatever. And at that point, you know, it kind of takes the wind out of her sails a little bit. She's like, yep, you are. Hmm. I don't really <laughs> have anything else to have say. Have anything to that. else to say. Okay. But so I hope that explained a little brief overview of operant conditioning, but definitely check out our video that talks about it in depth and gives much more um, specific examples. Absolutely. That's all we have time for in part two. We will see you shortly in part three. All right, so we're rolling into part three, and to start this off, we want to say, if, if you want, what do we, what do we want to say? If it's your first time to the channel, hit the subscribe button. Yeah, heck yeah, hit that subscribe button. Ooh. The other thing we're going to say is uh, all of these questions we're getting specifically from YouTube, and we want to make sure and mention this on a regular basis so that folks are continuing to 
the questions out there in the proper format, which is to say, Yawa question in the comments of any video you are watching. If it sparks a question in your mind, throw it down right there in the comments and say, Yawa question. Yawa question. So, which this is, one specifically. Which is exactly what Michael Paulitz did. Nice job, Michael. He said, Yawa question. What is your opinion on rollerblading with your dog to mimic the high octane mm-hmm. exercise of roading? I live in the suburbs and don't have a place or an ATV that I can use to road my dog, but it seems like pulling me on my rollerblades could be fairly good substitute. Could this potentially cause issues in other aspects of our training? Just looking for ways to get my Vishla into the best shape possible before her first time hunting. Also, I love my easy lead. I get questions about it regularly from my neighbors, and I always recommend that they go and buy one to teach their own dog how to heal. Awesome. If you have an easy lead and love it, throw it in the comments below. If you have an easy lead and don't love it, uh, reach out to us because we want to be able to help you. And if you don't have an easy lead, you can get one on our online store. Yeah, yeah. All the easy lead things. So great question, Michael. And we actually used to do this when we were back in college with mm-hmm. our first short hair, Crazy Sammy, which you might have heard about in previous videos We've that we talk about her. Sammy stories. Yeah. So she was our first short hair and we lived in town. We lived in an apartment, uh, young college students, and we needed ways to exercise her as well. So Ethan would actually take her for a run in the mornings. I'm not and then- the greatest rollerblader in the whole world. So to add a <laughs> a power source in front of me, if you will, uh, was probably not uh, Safe. smart. So yeah. then oh. before I would take off her work, I would let her pull me for three miles on the rollerblades. And definitely was really great exercise. She was in phenomenal shape. That girl was ripped. Um, but what you're asking about is, can it cause any potential issues with other training things? So when you utilize the pulling on rollerblades and like a roading type of environment, you want to make sure that you're using a harness that's properly, um, fitted, fitted for your dog for pulling. Mm-hmm. Don't be using the easy lead for no. roading with your dog. Don't be using a flat collar with a check. Uh, check cord or a leash attached to it puts too much puts too much pressure on the neck yes so um, as well as if it's up over their muzzle like the easy lead they're not supposed to want to pull and if you get them finally encouraged to pull they're just hardening themselves and that would be very uncomfortable for the dog to do so make sure you're using a properly fit harness for that roading Mm -hmm. but i don't see any issues with utilizing um roller blades we have people that have purchased our roading harnesses that use it on skateboards on bikes um somebody else has done it i think I think roller skating. Uh, we have some yeah. fans that are roller derby skaters. I guess I don't know exactly how to refer to that. Um, I'm sure that you guys will watch this because you're pretty um, excellent fans. And But throw down in there, what, what, what do we refer to you as? Roller derby aficionados? Derbyists. Der, derbyists, maybe? I don't know. Uh, but they were roller, roller skating on skates. Yeah. yeah, so definitely you can utilize a harness, and your rollerblades to Mm -hmm. get your dog some extra roading type exercise. Just be, be sure you're good at the stopping category because (laughs) uh, that could be. 
And the one last caveat that I want to throw in there, because you didn't mention how old your dog is. We Uh, definitely want to make sure that they are old enough to do the roading without potentially causing and the pulling type of um, exercises without causing any issues with joints and shoulders and things like that. Um, So we recommend waiting till at least a year. You can always talk to your vet if you have more questions or concerns about, you know, their growth plates and things like that. You don't want to overwork a young puppy because their growth plates and um, joints and things aren't fully developed yet. Yeah. Don't want to screw that stuff up. So, great question. So, the last question of the week is from Derek Van D. Veld. Yawa question. And it's a little bit of a long one, so I'm going to read it Um I might just read it in parts, but it's a really great question. I'll read it in parts, answer it in parts. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've been planning to do the positive pigeon drill with my five-month-old Spinoni. Mm -hmm. After watching your wing on a fishing pole video, I wondered why that was different than the positive pigeon drill, which I haven't done either yet. It might be a little stretch, but you're using visual experience to create a woe training. Like the fishing pole, which seemed to be frowned upon, is it more about the live bird experience? Is it a prey drive drill? Can you do this drill at any point in the dog's life? So that's kind of the part one part of that, that I wanted to go into some explanation and details, because that is a great question and one that not many people have made the correlation and asked about. Um, Yes. So doing the wing on a string with a fishing pole, which we did a video on is utilizing the dog's scent pointing ability to induce them to stop, stand there and point. Sight pointing. Yes. And we don't want to overdo that. So if you watch that video, we talk about, Hey, it's really awesome to get your puppy out to point this thing once or twice, but then throw it away. Don't do it anymore because you don't want to overdo the drill. And that's the problem that gets created is people don't necessarily have access to live birds and so they think, well, I'm just going to have my puppy point this wing on a string over and over and over. And that Cause will. Because it's a drill I can do at home. Yeah, in my backyard even. Yeah. Um, and that will be enough to get them prepped and ready to handle live birds and go out and hunt. Well, it can do the opposite where it puts too much emphasis on sight pointing, not enough emphasis on them learning to use their nose. So, yes, you can do that drill. We've done it before, obviously. Um, and we just don't overdo that drill. Then talking about the positive pigeon drill. Yeah. So the positive pigeon drill also utilizes sight pointing, if you will, and um, can kind of help teach a woe based behavior. But I think it's something that gets overlooked is again, that one, but probably doesn't get overdone as often because most people don't have access to pigeons the way that we do. Um, And that kind of forces their hand to say, well, I went and bought eight or 10 pigeons and I'm going to let them all go today. Um, but it also doesn't get overdone. So I'm talking on average with a dog, we're probably doing at most three to four sessions that way. At most. And a lot of them, two sessions, and that's Mm -hmm. all that they need. And the reason that we... Yeah, what we're looking for with that is the dog that starts to understand the game well enough that they're coming back and they're stopping kind of all on their own. They'll start stopping further and further away. Now that distance will vary based on the prey drive of the individual dog. And that game kind of just becomes a fun introduction with a with the birds and the dog and the handler. And you can read a lot about, you know, if I'm just getting to know this dog, what are you? Who are you? Playing that game with them. 
they have fun. They, you kind of build some teamwork because they're coming back to us for the next That's what bird. I was going to say, that cooperation, which is really, really important when you get into the field. Yes. And then at the same time, you get to evaluate, like I was saying, prey drive. How, where are we going to be? Dogs that uh, start stopping farther and farther away faster, that's going to be a dog that's going to be more naturally willing to point and willing to stand. The dogs that, of pointing instinct. that run all the way up to you and try and jump for the bird in your hand every single time. Those are going to be the dogs that are going to be probably on the harder edge to keep steady. And, and it even goes hand in hand with how much chase that those puppies have. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the puppies, you know, that are huge pointing instinct, they will, you know, chase the first couple and then they're like, well, I'm just going to point it because there's another one to point. I don't need to chase this anymore. That's that's, a, that's a strong indication of when you need to be done. Exactly. And sometimes you'll get some of these puppies that have that incredible amount of prey drive that they could chase those pigeons all day long every day and they would love it. Mm -hmm. But you also don't need to overdo that with those puppies. Um, but you can see sometimes they will chase and chase and chase and then finally come back to you. Um, so you, you can really evaluate a lot of things with just this simple drill. Um, but again, we're talking two, maybe three sessions. I've seen maybe a few dogs that we've done four with, but it's usually two to three. Yeah. And sometimes we'll do this drill with multiple dogs. If you have a dog that's lacking a little chasing desire, you can throw them in with a dog that Mm -hmm. loves to chase and it can build and boost some confidence. Um, and dogs can learn from each other in these situations and a really good drill for two dogs to do. Um, usually not two brand new dogs doing the drill. Usually you'll, you know, one dog will do it one day. And then the second day they're a little more proficient at the drill and the next dog that's fresh can work with that dog. So you've got a little more experienced puppy with a younger puppy learning to do this drill, um, together. And you were asking, and that's because timing's important. So the, as soon as the dog stops in the beginning, you need to let that bird go. And then we can build on the amount of time that they stand there, which kind of helps develop a, a woe type behavior without any pressure. And then when you, if you're running two dogs at the same time, your timing won't be right unless you have a dog that's ready for standing longer. And then the new dog that needs that perfect timing. So you're kind of basing off of when the new dog stops and stands just there and like, rewarding them. Just like when we're clicker training. Mm-hmm. So we're using that pigeon as our clicker, if you will, that as soon as that pigeon flies, that's the click. So the woe and standing behavior can end. Mm-hmm. So when you're teaching a puppy to sit, let's say that click has to be exactly when their butt hits the ground. Well, that also ends the behavior. So if you're trying to, you know, build some duration of a sit or build some duration of them standing there a little bit longer, you would hold that click or hold that pigeon just a little bit longer. So you can do that with the dog that has a better understanding. And then that new dog, like Ethan said, that timing has to be perfect for that beginning puppy. Yeah. And we showed that firsthand in a video we posted here just this last week about, um, place training with two young puppies at a time. That was thunder and clutch. And, I talked specifically about showing that timing aspect of things because Thunder was better at it. Clutch is still learning. So we're, um, you know, we're essentially marking Clutch. second session, I think. Yeah, we're essentially marking Clutch, not Thunder. And Thunder's getting rewarded and marked and rewarded for staying longer because he jumped on immediately, sat there, and we were getting Clutch worked over and then marked Clutch. So both dogs got marked for doing the right thing, just got marked for doing slightly different things. Yeah. And then lastly, what I want to mention with this positive pigeon drill, it allows us to start introducing the cue once the behavior is being exhibited consistently of, whoa, just like any other behavior of here, sit, kennel. Um, we don't introduce that cue until the dog actually understands what the behavior is that we're looking for them to do. 
Um, and then you can start asking for that sit behavior or hear behavior, and then they can comply with the cue. Same with these puppies. Once they understand that cue, whoa, they can comply. Even if you don't necessarily have a bird in your hand, um, you can woe them verbally. Uh, but again, it's not to the point of being reinforced with collar conditioning yet. So if they want to sit or if they want to come to you for that reward, mm-hmm. they will. If they want to woe, they will. Um, and it gives you a little bit more control, a little bit more handle when you get into the field and you're starting to get them on birds. You can reinforce with a quiet woe and then launch the bird when you're doing your pigeon work and stuff like that. But you haven't formally collar conditioned them to woe at that point. You've just introduced the cue, just like you've introduced the sit cue. And if you ask for it and they are willing to do it because the reward is high enough for them, um, they'll do it. But that's why ultimately, eventually, we will introduce and formally woe train these puppies that have learned that cue. For sure. So the last part of that question um, was just a quick summary of where we're at. I've done bird intro with a pigeon. She is very curious, but not the explosive chase type. Did a few sessions of launcher drill the way you use them in the puppy video. A couple weeks later, I shot the pigeon over her out of the launcher. After multiple great gun intros, she retrieved those pigeons pretty happily to hand. I took the next step to a chucker and that went well too. Recently, I tried a pheasant and that did not go as smoothly, but I made it a happy, good experience. She was tail wagging with the bird in her mouth by the end. Since the experience felt rough, which made me want to maybe roll back a bit, slow it down, maybe do a positive pigeon drill finally. Her prey drive has always seemed a little low or not as developed yet. Will that positive pigeon drill help develop more prey drive? I'm in no hurry, so don't mind taking a few steps back. Wait, 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 wait. This was a Spinoni, right? Five-month-old Spinoni. Okay. So that's what you're dealing with is just an individual breed that's going to be... A little slower to mature, typically. Yeah. And even at maturity, I would say a little bit on the lower drive and desire standpoint. Yeah. They're a little more low-key dog. So On average. On average. So like we talked about at the beginning of this, you know, doing this drill allows you to really evaluate your puppy. So the little bit of lower drive and lack of chase that you're seeing isn't necessarily going to be brought out more um, Mm -mm. by doing this drill. She may end up deciding to chase less because she realizes she can't catch this bird. There's no retrieve involved. Um, She'd rather just point. I would say more birds in the mouth is going to help with that. With increasing that drive and desire. doing it. Yeah. I mean. And we, um, you know, you didn't give us a ton of information about what didn't necessarily go smoothly with the pheasant. Was Mm -hmm. it the retrieving aspect of that? It sounded a little bit more like it was, you know, the uncertainty of retrieving the bigger bird or was it necessarily, you know, the pointing of that pheasant? Um, so we need a little more information about that, but it doesn't hurt to try introducing the positive pigeon drill, but ultimately it sounds like your puppy's already pointing well in the field. And um, pointing pigeons, chucker, and potentially even your pheasant. So, you know, introducing this drill isn't necessary at this point, in my opinion. Nope. I would say nope. Uh, I think that you probably just need to take a little breather. Yep. um, Slow down your bird interactions just a little bit so that they... Stay exciting. They stay exciting. Yep. And it'll, it'll build with time. Yeah. And if you need more help or want to give us more feedback on what exactly was going on, you know, with a pheasant, or if you want a little more help with drills that you can do later on with your puppy, um, definitely feel free to reach out to us on our online dog training community on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash standing stone kennels. Um, and we'd be happy to help you there. 
Well, that's all we have time for this week, folks. If you are watching just this video or you just found this video, um, definitely hit us up on the podcast catchers. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can listen to the entire audio segment straight through of this if that is your thing. If not, we will see you. Well, I'm out of uh, go-go juice, which is just branch chain amino acids because it's uh, sober October. (laughs) Doesn't that sound fun? Well, Ethan's getting ready to guide and he's got to be game face on. Tip top shape, running, working out, carrying a baby around on the old pack. Uh, It was a good warm up for as much walking and work that we'll do this next month. But, or I guess the end of this month here, just a few weeks. Thanks everybody for watching though. I'm the guy with the pink gun. I'm Kat the dog trainer. And we will see slash uh, allow you to listen to us in the next video. And podcast. And podcast. (laughs) Goodbye.